Philippians 4, 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudodia and I plead with Synthety to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Before I start uh, this morning, I'm going to pray mostly for myself, but for all of us as well. Um, Heavenly Father, would you use this next 20 or so minutes to glorify yourself? Um, God, open our hearts to receive your word, and may your word fill us with reasons to rejoice in you. Amen. Throughout all of Philippians, uh, this sermon series we've been in, we've been looking at the question of what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? And we've learned to put the joy of the gospel in the center of our relationships. We've learned to live our lives worthy of the gospel by seeking the unity of Christ. And all of this we've learned while we're being reminded to rejoice and encouraged to keep on maturing. And so here we are today, opening Philippians 4, with Paul saying, Therefore... Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord in this way. So we're keeping in mind everything that we've seen so far in all of Philippians. And Paul's saying, in light of all those big ideas and in light of everything I've taught you, stand firm in the Lord. And then he goes on into what is essentially like a really practical application section of his letter and what that looks like for the Philippian church. And that actually makes this section practical for us as well, because with it we can answer the question, what does it look like to stand firm in this way? What does it look like to stand firm in gospel thinking? And the answers Paul gives are quite nicely broken up in the verses we're looking at today. Standing firm in gospel thinking looks like Christians uniting, rejoicing, and living in peace. There's practical uniting in verses 2 and 3, practical rejoicing in 4 and 5, and practical living or living in peace in verses 6 through to 9. So let's jump into Philippians 4 and kind of unpack each of these things, starting with practical uniting. Where practical uniting is letting the gospel unite us with each other. When Paul says, I plead with Yodia, I plead with Sintuke to be of the same mind in the Lord, he's addressing these two women in the Philippian church 
And because we've already established it's really hard to say their names, I'm going to call them Eunice and Cynthia from here on out. It's just going to be easier. So we don't actually know what this conflict between Eunice and Cynthia was. Uh, We can figure out based on how Paul is writing and the context we've got here that there is some kind of obvious and ongoing conflict between them and that it's disrupting the unity of the church or at the very least disrupting Eunice and Cynthia's ability to live worthy of the gospel. But actually, whether or not we know what was going on between them isn't the point. The point is Paul's calling these two women to unity because that point is what applies to us as well. It's by the same grace in the same gospel, we have the same reason and means to be united. And so in writing here to single out Eunice and Cynthia, Paul is making it clear that gospel unity is really important. And so because we are all people in Christ, we all seek the unity of Christ. And so if you've ever felt a tension like this with yourself and someone else in the church, then Paul here is writing to you. Or if you've ever been in a church where this tension has existed, then Paul is also writing to you. Because Paul's calling this disunity out is saying that disunity can have so much more of an impact on the church than just affecting the two or few people who might be disunited. It can affect the whole church. And what's worse is that disunity can spoil the missional beauty of the gospel at work in and through the church because we, we live under a united gospel. So for all the seriousness that Paul seems to take unity with, it's kind of interesting that he seems to just briefly address it and then move on, almost like he's assuming that Eunice and Cynthia will have no issues resolving and reconciling their differences. And I find that kind of odd, and so I had to ask myself, why would that be? And the good news here is that Paul's confidence is not in the ability that Eunice and Cynthia have to make nice. Paul's confidence is in the power of the gospel to shape and soften hearts. See, Paul is confident here that with the church encouraging them, simply reminding Eunice and Cynthia of the gospel will reunite them. And given that they have contended at Paul's side for the gospel, we know that these women love Jesus. They work hard in the church for Jesus. And so Paul's really clever in just saying to them, look at the work you've done in the church. Even more, look at what God has done in you. Don't throw any of that away because you disagree on this thing. Paul's really clever in simply reminding them about the importance of the message of Jesus. So as recipients of the same grace, of the same gospel, we have this same great reason to be united. And we put the joy of Jesus in the center of all our relationships. This Christ-centered unity, this joyful approach to unity in our church brings glory to God. So because as members of the same church, we too are gospel co-workers, standing firm in gospel thinking looks like letting the gospel unite us with each other. And that means, as Paul showed us, letting the gospel unite us as we all remind each other of it, as we encourage each other with this wonderful message, the message of Jesus. And it also means, as we'll see next, letting the gospel unite us as we look forward to Jesus' return and rejoice. So let's look 
this uh, practical rejoicing. Practical rejoicing is rejoicing always, knowing that Jesus is near. Verses 4 and 5, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And if we reflect on everything that Paul's taught us so far about our reasons to rejoice, we actually already have a massive list. In chapter 1, we saw God has begun a good work in us. He's carrying it on to completion the day of Jesus Christ. And the fact that Christ is preached, amazing reasons to rejoice in the Lord. Then in chapter 2, the amazing extent of grace and humility that Jesus showed when he died on the cross for us. The fact that God is working in us to fulfill his good purpose. In chapter 3, the fact that grace far exceeds any righteousness earned through the law. And we also saw a glimpse at Jesus' return in power. And when we look at that great list, it seems like such a simple imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. And with such great reasons to rejoice, it doesn't surprise me that Paul writes this again, rejoice in the Lord. But as simple as this command seems, it's still such a useful one because we do forget. Especially when the stress and busyness of our life seems so quickly to get in the way of our feeling like we have reasons to rejoice. We need constant reminding again and again to rejoice in the Lord. But at least Paul knows that rejoicing in the Lord is easier when we see the reasons we have to rejoice. And that's why he points us to this part. The Lord is near. Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning as the powerful saviour to bring everything under his control and to transform this world in his glory. Which, even with all of the other reasons we've looked at to rejoice so far, this is like another greater reason, again, stacked on top of all of those ones, because we have confidence in the coming return of Jesus. Confident hope in the day when God's work in us is completed, our salvation is fully realised. The day when Jesus, our Saviour, returns, when our bodies and minds are restored, and Paul says, rejoice, knowing that this time, that the Lord Jesus is near, rejoice in the Lord, always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So, if nothing else, given the absolute certainty we have of Jesus' return, there is nothing that can ever truly remove our reason to rejoice. And given the hope we have that we will never lose that, we can't lose our ability to rejoice in the Lord. So standing firm in gospel thinking looks like rejoicing in the Lord always, knowing that he is near. But even though Paul says always, he still knows what it's like to be human. He knows that we still forget to rejoice. And that's why he's been writing in Philippians the way that he's been writing, because he would say, what's stopping you rejoicing? Is it disunity? Well, Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let the gospel define your relationships. Be of the same mind. Rejoice in the Lord. And perhaps it's your body. Well, then you too can look forward to this day when we have resurrected bodies, when we experience the truest reality of life in Jesus. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord. And perhaps maybe you feel the problem is in your mind in the way that the stress and worries of just getting through your day pile up. Well, 
Paul would say, rejoice in the Lord. He knows it can be difficult, but he teaches us how to live and rejoice in this space too, which is how we get to practical rejoicing, living, which is rejoicing. Practical living is living peacefully by practicing living in the peace of God. And before I go anywhere with these verses, I want to address something that I know can be true about them. That these are some really well-known and very often quoted verses. And they are really encouraging. And they're fantastic. But I know that to some people, because of their experiences, these verses can be hard to hear or they can be discouraging. When I was studying my psychology degree at uni, I had a a class where a tutor opened the class by showing us a video. It was a comedy sketch, um, fairly well known. You may have seen it before. But in this sketch, the comedian uh, plays a therapist and he sees a client and basically tells her that he can solve all of her worries in less than five minutes of therapy time. And so she sits down and she starts to kind of unpack her fears and her worries and he kind of stops and listens and looks at her for a second and then interrupts to say, stop it! And she's taken aback and he suggests that the solution to all of her problems is that she simply, stop it. She says, I'm really anxious about, stop it. I'm really fearful of, stop it. It's a funny sketch. But the reason the tutor showed it to us was to make a point that's stuck with me here. That this is not the way that real therapy works. This is not the way that the worries of our minds are eased. And so... If you've ever been anxious and looked at these verses or had someone quote them to you or at you, know that the Bible here is not yelling at you to stop it. Paul's intent is not to write condemnation for worrying and stress. These are encouraging verses. And there are two observations that I want you to see today in the hope that these verses give you that much more joy when you read them. And as we continue looking at them, let's also make sure we do that by remembering everything we've seen and especially focusing and thinking about our reason to rejoice because the Lord is near. Because the return of Jesus and the restoration of our bodies and minds is the best part of all of this. So when are these verses useful? When Paul says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, this passage isn't commanding that we must put a stop to or end our worrying altogether. It's a challenge to change our day-to-day living. It's not that we should only read the rest of verses 6 through 9 as being a response to an anxious or anxiety-causing situation. But when Paul says in every situation, he means those that cause anxiety as well as those that don't which makes the whole lesson of this section even better news for all Christians because these verses become so much more than just an anxiety cure. They aren't just medicine to be taken when we're feeling stressed. We can start to think about them perhaps being more like breakfast or your morning coffee because they are something for every day. But actually, breakfast and coffee, I don't think, is a good enough example because you only have breakfast once a day and maybe you have one, two, three, you work in IT, seven coffees a day. It's still not the same. Maybe they're like a drink of water that's there for every hour of every day. You can keep taking it in. But actually, water is still not good enough. Maybe they're like a breath 
of air for every second of every minute of every hour therefore every situation of your day and hopefully it's clear that I was trying to exaggerate that illustration because I do want you to see these verses are useful in every situation they're more than a situational anxiety cure they're not just groovy words on a bookmark even if they are useful in stressful situations they're for every situation And that's really good news for us because they show us that God is interested in making us like Jesus in all of our lives. Not only when we are stressed or not only when we're worried about something. That this practicing to live in prayer and thanksgiving and in meditation on the word of God that Paul is teaching us is part of what the process of gradually maturing in Christ looks like. And I very deliberately say practicing and gradually because this is also not something that we should expect to achieve or change instantly. Paul's reminding us that this is part of our day-to-day, part of how we work out our salvation, living in light of everything we've learned about rejoicing and grace and unity. Living by prayer and the word of God is a learning process. And note that in the same way that physical health is more than just a question of are you ill or not, Mental and spiritual health are more than just questions of are you stressed or not? And so as we consider how these verses help us to stand firm in gospel thinking and live out the gospel, we can also consider how they apply to our mental health if we approach them with the right frame of mind. Because the God-inspired words of the Bible are not ignorant of the workings of the human mind. In the same way that our mental health therapy has the goal of teaching you to think differently, so too does the Bible. The aim of undertaking such a therapy is that we would learn strategies to correct the course of our thinking and gradually retrain our brain to respond differently in a healthier way in difficult and stressful situations. And it's the same with our practice of prayer and thanksgiving and meditating on God's word. These practices allow us to learn another way of thinking and reacting to the events of our lives in light of the truth of the gospel. And similarly, just like how the best times to train a therapy strategy aren't in the whirlwind moments of stress in your life, it's in the normalness of your everyday. It's the same with these verses. We pray and we thank God and we read and we remember his word in the most mundane times of life. The times like when you're cooking dinner before bed, when you wake up, when you're brushing your teeth, in every situation. And this will mean that sometimes worries will come along and all of this practice will have you so prepared to face it that you will immediately be refocused on God. You'll be rejoicing and praying the picture of peace. Sometimes that might take a while. And sometimes it will feel like it doesn't work at all or you'll forget altogether. But even then, just as anyone administering a therapy would not consider you to have failed in such a situation, nor does the God of the Bible consider you to have failed in this situation. Which brings me to the second observation. Where are the full stops? Because the word and in these verses can often trick us into thinking that they are conditional. Do this and this will happen. Pray, and then God will give you his peace. Practice what Paul says, 
and then God will be with you. But these are not conditional verses. God is so much more gracious to us than that. And to me, this is just even more fantastic news. Because how much grander is this promise that God is not just offering his peace only when we are anxious? Or how much better is life knowing that the God of peace is not only with us after we achieve a certain standard of living? Perhaps we should read these ands more like a plus. In every situation, pray, plus the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. This is the promise that the God of peace is with us in every situation. Put these lessons into practice, plus the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace is already with us while we put this life into practice. And the peace of God, excuse me, sorry. This is all true, that the peace of God is with us because the God of peace is with us. And the God of peace is with us because Jesus humbled himself, taking God's anger and wrath against sin and nailing it to the cross, which means we, for all our sin, could know his peace. So standing firm in gospel thinking looks like practicing a way of living in the peace of God in every situation. But it looks like doing it knowing that we can do it because the God of peace is with us. With us as we learn how. So, in all of this part of Philippians 4, Paul's told us what it looks like to stand firm in gospel thinking, in the way of a gospel-centered life that he's been teaching us about in all of Philippians. And as much as all these practical things apply to living out the gospel, the gospel is exactly what we need to live out all these things. Because we can only stand firm in practical unity because we have the gospel. Without Jesus dying on the cross and achieving salvation on our behalf, we would all be hopelessly lost, desperately trying to achieve a salvation for ourselves and there would be no grace to unite us. But because Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, for his sake we learn to put aside our differences, we learn to become like him, and this unites us in our relationships with one another. The common gospel mindset, our unity is in Christ. And likewise, of all of our reasons to rejoice, the greatest reason we have is the gospel. The fact that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, and that God exalted him to the highest place, and that we eagerly await our Saviour, Jesus, from heaven. The Lord is near. This is the source of all of our hope, all of our joy. It is our unchanging reason to rejoice. And we can live our lives assured that the God of peace is with us because Jesus took the wrath of God when he died. We can live in this peace by knowing the, peace, the God of peace through prayer and through his word. And our performance is not a condition of his peace being with us because Jesus already lived a sinless life and made perfect atonement for us, which means the God of peace does not abandon us when we worry. And so for me, in this last week, God gave me plenty of opportunity to see this in action. 
I was struggling against the busy days after busy days at work and buried in the stress of my new role and responsibilities and I felt like I ran the emotional gamut of stress to serene and every situation that falls in between. And I suspect most, if not all of you, can relate to that. But I thank God for these verses because by these verses he showed me how I could rejoice through this week. And I rejoice now because I know that I felt the peace of God with me in all of it. And by no means did I do perfectly, um, but God was there. When the stresses of the day hit, the God of peace was with me, reminding me to pray and to know his peace. And when the stresses of the day really hit, the peace of God was still there, reminding me to rejoice, pointing me ahead, the time when I forget what stress was ever like at all, the return of Jesus. And so while I still have a lot to learn about living worthy of the gospel, I rejoice that the peace that belongs to God, the God of peace, will guard my heart and mind. And this is true for you as well. So do be encouraged as you go into this week Whatever busyness awaits you, whatever stress, whatever situation, the God of peace will be with you. Let me pray. God of, God of peace, we thank you for being with us in every situation. Father, we thank you for Paul's letter to the Philippians and all the encouragement it has provided us with in these last weeks. Lord Jesus, would your gospel unite us. Help us to proclaim it to one another and to be shaped and encouraged by its convicting truth and unimaginable beauty. May we be like-minded as we rejoice in all that you have done. And help us, coming Saviour, to rejoice in the confidence we have of your return. Make our hearts eager and our minds steadfast in the time we spend waiting. Fill us with the peace that transcends our understanding and teach us to be people of prayer in every situation. Teach us to give thanks and help us to be filled with wonder at your word that we might remember and rejoice in all the lovely and praiseworthy things you have done. So we again thank you, God of peace, for the joy of knowing you. Jesus, would you complete our joy in returning soon. Amen.